Last week we began a little mini-series called Spirit, Soul, and Body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is our key scripture. And in this verse, the Apostle Paul writes at the end of this very powerful letter that you don't hear a lot about, but uh, to the church at Thessalonica, and says at the end, and this is not just some tag at the end, this is the Word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means set you apart. Set you apart to him as belonging to him. And may he sanctify you completely. So he's going to list all the parts that he wants sanctified to him. Your whole spirit, your whole soul, and your whole body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the purpose of this series, which is yet last Sunday and, and quite possibly this Sunday, I'm not sure whether we may go into next Sunday or not. Uh, no, I don't think we will. Uh, is to just to make, make us aware. I, we could spend months on this subject, and it's, but it's, it's a very important foundational understanding to have. And I was debating whether to do this because there's a very strong spiritual direction that I feel God's calling us to go. And I was thinking in my mind, why go, why go back to this? But it's a foundation for understanding some things. And we'll see that by the time we come to the end. This sounds very theological and very conceptual and very academic. But it needs to be applied in our lives because your, your paradigm, the way you understand things is the filter through which you receive things. So if you were raised to think that God is a difficult taskmaster and He's a mean God just waiting to strike you, you'll receive everything of the Word of God through that filter. So anything that doesn't line up with the image you have, your mind will dismiss. It won't, it won't get in there. It's like a filter that keeps some things out. We have a, a water filter because the town we live in, the water is full of minerals. It's very heavy water. Very, very uh, heavy, hard is the word I'm trying to use. So we, we have to get a water filter which filters out those things we don't want to drink. And this is what our mind does. It filters out things that it either doesn't understand or doesn't agree with. So it doesn't even get in. It may be floating around in your mind somewhere, but it doesn't get in. So this is one of these things that you need to understand. Some of you understood this because you've heard this many times before, but we need to be called back and reminded of it. Let's put it this way. If none of you need this, I need to hear it. So just listen in. All right? So we're looking at these three parts because we get them all mixed up. And I shared last week, and I could feel, I could just feel it just bouncing off of people. It's like, because it didn't fit in with the image and understanding that you have. So we need to adjust our understanding to God's Word because God's Word will never adjust to your understanding. And so what we're learning from this is you are made up of three different parts. Spirit, your soul, and your body. We talked about what your spirit is. Your spirit is the essence of who you are. It is your nature. It is your inner nature that from which everything comes. It's like, it's like an, an apple seed has a nature to produce apple trees and apples from that. A, a pear tree has a nature to produce pears from a pear tree. So it will produce whatever its nature is. So you will produce the fruit in your life that comes from the nature that is the, your, your nature. And this is the part of you that when you come to Christ, God changes. And then we saw you have a soul. And we'll go, to, go look more, diff, more completely at these parts uh, today. And your soul is your personality. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And they live in your body. Your body is your earth suit. It's what's needed for you to function on this earth. So this is what we're going to look at, but we're going to look at in a little more detail and understand what these parts are. I had this image. I was talking to Charles Picard, who does our, our uh, graphics things. 
Uh, I, I had this picture in my mind. Ever, ever get uh, a, a new, I don't know, dishwasher or something like that, and you're looking, through the, uh, you're looking through the instructions, and somewhere in there, there's this picture of all the parts blown out like this. You know, so they, and there are little numbers, and so you can down and find out this is a, this is a you know, whatever it's called. You know. That's what we're doing. We're taking you, and we're blowing you out, but it's only three parts so that you can have an understanding of those parts and learn to cooperate with God because God works through each one of these parts in different ways and if you don't understand it, we won't cooperate with God. It's like, it's like an AM and FM radio. An AM radio can only pick up AM singles even though, signals even though FM signals are in the air. It can only pick up what it's open to receive. And so that's why it's important to understand this. So but in order to do that, we have to go back and look at something that looks very theological, very academic, but it's absolutely key to your walking in success as a Christian. So let's go to Genesis chapter uh, 1. The Bible teaches us that there are two, one, two, two very different realms of existence. A realm is, a, is an area of influence, it's an area of understanding, it's an area of authority. Kings will, used to be said, we don't have many kings anymore, in their realm, the, the realm of the king of England, which is an area of domain, it's an area of identity, it's an area of interest, of, of, of influence. So the Bible teaches that there are two of them. There is a spirit realm, and then there's a physical, natural, material realm. Now there may be other realms, that are some, but these are what the Bible tells us, this is what we need to know. So Genesis chapter 1, this is easy to find, it's the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, let's stop there. Ever wonder, what's the beginning of what? This is the way my mind works. This is how I guess somehow I can teach and break things. In the beginning of what? I mean, what are, in the beginning of the Bible? In the beginning of what? Well, we're going to see that, because he tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it's the beginning the origin of the heavens and the earth. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand the Bible talks about different heavens. And, and I've heard there's seven heavens, I've heard there's three heavens, there's more than one, that's what we need to know. There's heaven where God lives. Okay? But there's a heaven around this earth. It is the spiritual atmosphere that surrounds this earth and permeates this earth. If you've ever, if you ever um, uh, had some, uh, uh, some, well, we a number of years ago we were on a, uh, a vacation and came back and opened the door, and oh, it was no, it was last year, and something was wrong in the house. We had a backup in our sewer system, and it, I called the I called the, the the guy used for repair, and he said, well, I can come over tomorrow. I said, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Because this odor permeates the house. It fills in every gap. It fills up my nostrils. It took days to get it out of my nostrils. And so, so the heavens that this is talking about is the spiritual atmosphere that permeates the atmosphere around this in, in this earth. It's in this room. There's a heaven in this room. It's a spiritual atmosphere. And the earth itself... So God created these two realms of existence. And this is referring to the material realm of existence. In the beginning, God created one of these realms of existence. And this is what we call the natural or material realm. 
And this realm was created out of the spirit realm that God lives in, which we'll look at in a minute. Hebrews 11.3 tells us this. Hebrews 11 is talking about faith and, and what we need to believe that we can't see. And so he says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. That set me free years ago when I finally realized what that's saying. We don't understand it by science. Because science is the study of things we can see and understand with our mind. But there's some things you cannot understand with your mind. We talked about that last week in Colossians chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1 and 2, that there's a f- the wisdom of man, the knowledge of man, the wisdom of man in God, compared to God is foolishness. But God has a wisdom. It's infinitely above this. So the only way we can understand how this world and this universe was framed was not by science, but was by the Word of God. It's what God said, because He's the one that created it. But we can only understand it by faith. So that the things which are seen, the things which our microscope can, de- can detect, the things which our thermometers can detect, or every other, mom- every other meter can detect, the things which our spaceship can discern, all these things that we can see were not made out of things that are visible. In other words, when God created the heavens and the earth, He didn't get the angels together and say, you go to Home Depot, and you group go to Lowe's, and you get all the materials, and we'll come back here, and we'll put this, you put it together. No, God, there was nothing. And we didn't go on and read in Genesis, God just said, let there be, and there was. So everything you can see, this natural material realm was created out of the spirit realm. It existed there first. And that's still true today. The healing you need in your body already exists. It just hasn't manifested in your physical material body. But it already exists. So you have to see it by faith first before you can be called into reality here. So the whole point here is to recognize this verse is talking about two different realms of existence. There's the visible realm. Because this natural material realm is a realm, one of the ways to tell whether something's in this or not is if you can detect it with your five senses. Your body, and we'll see this in a minute, was created out of the material of this world, this earth, of this realm. So this material realm can only be sensed, determined through something else of this material realm. So let's just move ahead with this, because I don't want to get bogged down in this. This material realm is, is, a, is a temporary kingdom. It, it's always changing. If you don't believe that, look at your high school graduation picture and then look in a mirror. And surgeons can do things and Botox can do things, and, but there's just, that gravity has an effect. I love what Mary Ann Brown used to say. It's like everything that used to be north goes south. <laughs> Then there's the spirit realm. This is the realm out of w- in which God lives. We looked at last week. God is a spirit. God is not a, God is not a body. He, he has a spiritual body, but He is not a body the way you and I are. 
That's why John chapter 1, I can get so, so sidetracked here. That's why John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's the second person of Godhead. We'll talk about him in a couple of minutes. And the Word, verse 14 says, became flesh. He, 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 he was put in flesh so we could see him. And then we beheld, his, we beheld his glory, full of glory, full of grace and truth, and we could behold his glory. We couldn't behold his glory with our natural eyes because he wasn't wearing an earth suit. Your body's an earth suit. It's what keeps you here. You can't function in this realm without an earth suit, without a body. And so... So I, I was going to read it, but we're not going to this morning. I, we, we, the Bible only gives us certain glimpses into the spirit realm. And there are a number of them, but I'm going to just refer to two of them. We're not going to put it up there. In Isaiah 6, because I, I could very easily just go off on any one of these. Isaiah 6, the great prophet Isaiah, was taken in a vision into the throne room. And he looked and beheld God's throne. And this was a very holy man. And his first reaction is he fell on his face and said, I am an unholy man with unholy lips and I live among an unholy people. And he saw the seraphim and he saw the, 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 the cherubim surrounding the throne of God. And the train of God's robe filled the temple and was filled with smoke. And then at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation Jesus appears to the Apostle John, the last living of the apostles of the Lamb, and he appears to him on the Lord's Day, and he's in the Spirit. John was in the Spirit. We'll explain to you later on what that means. John was in the Spirit, and Jesus appears to him and dictates a letter, different letter to seven different churches, and then starting in chapter 4, his eyes, the veil, the veil, the curtain begins to be pulled back, and he begins to see in the Spirit into heaven of things that are going to come. And in Revelation, those chapters are hard to read because, because what is, it's hard to get an image of what that is. Why? Because heavenly things, spiritual things, are infinitely so far beyond what our little pea brains can grasp. And men like John or, or Isaiah that saw him there, in order to communicate it, their brain has to search through their vocabulary and try to find a word that somehow matches the impression of what they saw. And the human language, whether it's Hebrew, Chaldean, Greek, or whatever it is, is so inadequate to do that, they've got to find words that best describe it. For instance, Moses in, Genesis, in, in Exodus 3, oh, I can't go there. We'll never get into what we've got to get into. So the, the spirit realm is eternal. That means it never has a beginning. It has no end. There's no time there. So the pastor can preach forever and nobody's aware of the time. No. <laughs> it's more real than the material realm. More real than the material realm. There's a, an allegory that C.S. Lewis writes called The Great Divorce. And there's a scene in there which is so powerful where this man is taken on a trip into heaven. And he, he says, Mother, I don't want to go into all the details, but he steps out of the bus, I think it was, if I remember correctly, and he steps out, and there's the, there's the heavenly city over there, and he's walking on the grass, and he has an angel there to guide him, and he looks down, and the grass is sticking through his feet. Now, when we were in Florida, the grass there was very different. It's very firm, it's very tall, but it didn't go through my feet. Wherever I walked, it was matted down. 
but the grass went through his feet. And he turns to the angel and he says, how come the grass is sticking through my feet? And the angel says, because the grass here is more real than your foot. That's why the resurrected Christ could walk through walls. Because his body was more real than the wall. And he could walk through it. So it's more real. It's eternal. It has no beginning. It has no end. It cannot be detected with our five senses. Because our five senses are of this body. It cannot be detected with our five senses. Unless God does something supernatural beyond what's natural, and either does what he did for Isaiah and John in the book of Revelation and pulls back the eyes of our spirit so we can see it, or does a physical manifestation. But those are unusual. Those are rare. It's the realm where God exists. It's holy. And because it's holy, nothing can enter there that's not equally as holy. This is why Jesus had to come. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1. Who chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption through Jesus, through Jesus Christ to Himself. If you are in Christ, you are as holy as God is in your nature because you're in Christ who's holy. Amen. It's not your holiness. It's because of the one you've been joined to and made one with. We talked about that last week. And everything in this, that exists in this physical realm came out of the spirit realm. Okay, Genesis 2.7. It's all broken down here. This is the story of creation. Chapter 1 is the story of creation in the order of time, in the order of, of when God did it. Chapter 2 is in the order of importance. Chapter 1 starts with the, the heavens and the earth and ends with man. Chapter 2 starts with man and ends with the rest of creation. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The word formed there is a Hebrew word that's used when it talks about how a potter is going to make something out of, form something out of clay on a wheel, and he reaches with his powerful hand into this lump of clay and pulls it out, and he fashions, forms it with the strength of his hand. So this word form implies that God physically formed man out of the material of this material realm, out of the dust of this earth. This is why when your spirit's done with your body, it goes back to dust unless it's fried. Well, it goes back to dust anyway. Because it came out of dust. It's of this natural realm. And this is why this is so important to understand, because we're dominated by our thinking. We're dominated, by our, we're dominated so much by the things of this realm when that's not what you are. He formed man out of the dust of the ground, so he's got his body formed, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God didn't call angels to put life in him. Everything else, the life of it came by words God spoke. This is the only being God created. He took His own breath, His own life, and He breathed His own life into the dead nostrils of that man. That's His spirit. So God made His our body out of the substance of this natural realm, but God made our nature out of His own nature. He breathed it into the nostrils of this man, and he became 
a living being. The, the old King James says a living soul. So here are all three parts of you. God formed your body out of the material substance of this earth. God put His Spirit in the man, a living spirit in man, by breathing His own life into them. And as a result of that, a soul was developed. Mind, will, and emotions. Now, here's what's important. That was the lay the foundation. Because the, the title of this message is Knowing the Parts. The blow-up image of the different parts. Knowing your parts, but they function together. And that's what we're going to begin to talk about. There is an order and a function for each one of these three parts of you. Ours, the, now we're talking about when God... We're back in Genesis, where God created them. Their spirit was in perfect union with God. Perfect communication. They literally were in God's presence. So conscious of God, so taken up by God. Their spirit was so aware and conscious of God, who is a spirit... It says in the last verse of chapter 2, there were no clothes on their physical body and they didn't notice it. Can you imagine? Somebody was joking this morning. They came to church and they forgot their coat. I said, well, at least you remembered your pants. I said, there's just certain key things I check before I go out the door. But I suspect I'd remember if I forgot my pants. Especially when it's breezy. You know, it's not the kind of thing you, you'd notice if you don't have... My coat I might forget. I've done it before. But my pants I'm not going to forget. Okay? The point is, they didn't, weren't aware. They were so in tune in union with God that their physical body and the condition of their physical body was not something they were really focused on or conscious of. We're the other way around. So their spirit was intended to be God in them, directing them, fellowshipping with them, and imparting His life. This is what God intended. Their body was from this material realm, and it was just a container by which they could interact with this material realm in which God had placed them. And the soul is the bridge between the two. Because as I said before, the spirit realm and the material realm have no contact with each other. They cannot discern each other. This room right now is filled with angels. If you're a Christian, you brought at least one with you. The Spirit of God is here. But you can't see Him unless God does something supernatural. So that your soul is the part of you that connects the two together. And I, I, when I, I teach renewing the mind again, oh, I didn't mention this. I should have mentioned this earlier. I've started last Wednesday night that series I did years ago on, on the blood covenant. I used to teach it in school of ministry. So if you can be there during this, I encourage you. So we'll continue it this week. Then we have a break with John Waller and prayer night. And then I finish with three more sessions on the blood covenant. Um, how did I get off on that? Oh, yeah. The, the soul is, is your part of you that bridges the two. It's in contact with your spirit. It's in contact with the natural material realm. Okay. Now, there's an analogy or a comparison between the way we're made and the way God's made. I, I alluded to this last week. We are made of three parts. God has three parts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
in the, in, the, in when Jesus is uh, is is baptized in the Holy Spirit in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, you can see all three of them there. John says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." There's the Son. While he comes up out of the water, it says the Spirit of God comes down out of heaven in bodily form and fills him. And then the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So they're all three present. But they are not, they're equally God, but they don't have the same roles. The Godhead has different roles, different responsibilities. It's important to understand that. The Father wills. It's His will that is carried out. Jesus, when He came to the earth, said, I only do the will of my Father. When the disciples asked Him, well, how should we pray? He said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, our, including Him, hallowed be them. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth. And so the Son and the Spirit are here to do the Father's will. It's kind of like a king... A king in the old days, not so much anymore, it was, everybody carried out the king's role, king's will, whatever he wanted. And if you didn't, you died. So everybody, even in the court, was designed to carry out the king's will. The son is the one responsible for carrying out the king's will, the, 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 the father's will. So in, a, in an old kingdom where you had a king, that king had an administrator, had a prime minister. In the, in the military, uh, especially the navy, a captain of a ship is the one, it's his will, his law, world's law, but he has an executive officer. And his responsibility isn't to decide what to do, his responsibility is to find out what the captain's once done and make sure it's carried out. That was the son, that's the son's role. The Holy Spirit becomes the agent that physically carries out the will of the Father as done by the Son. So we're going to look at this quickly. I just gave you one of them. Um, Jesus said about the Father, not my will, but His will be done. The Son, John 1, 3. This is something about the Son, the second person of the Godhead. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. It was made through Him. Colossians 1.16 For by Him, that's the Son, all things were created, that in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, with thrones or dominions or principalities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now let's go to Genesis 1.12, Genesis 1 again. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're going to see how, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness on the face of it, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I don't want to get into whether it was formed or reformed. So the picture here is this. The Father wants to create this earth. And this, this, that's just, it's not just this earth, it's the universe. And the Son is poised, because He's the Word of God, but the Spirit is poised over it physically to carry it out the moment the words are spoken. It's kind of as if, as if gas fumes leaked into, into this room 
And all it takes is somebody to light a match and it explodes with power. That's why when Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples, that's not enough. It's not enough that I've died for you. It's enough to get them saved. But not to do what you're here to do. I'm going to, but when I go, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send a replacement for me, and it's the Holy Spirit. You need to have Him fill you with Himself, because He's the physical agent that birthed the church, and He's the physical agent that carries out the work of the church in the world even today, and He does it through your body and my body. All right, let's move on. In the fall, let's go to Genesis 3. So that's how God set it up. Perfect. Man's spirit is what governed him. And it was in perfect union with God. Through that spirit, God directed him. God, uh, God had fellowship with him, communion with him. Through that spirit, God infused him with his life and ability. And Satan couldn't handle that. So Genesis chapter 3, he comes in and, and all he, he, Satan can't destroy anything. All he can do is get it out of order. Now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now at the, after the word garden, what's that punctuation mark? It's a question mark, isn't it? So he comes and what, what does he want to do? He wants to destroy what God just created. So how does he do it? He comes with a question. Now what does a question appeal to? They had been told what to do. They said, God said, I've created this beautiful place called Eden, a place of delight, and I have placed you in there. I provided everything you're ever going to need, not just for function, but to enjoy. I want you to go eat of it, enjoy it, have your fun with it. There's just one thing you can't do. Do not eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden. Simple obedience out of their spirit. So what does Satan come? He can't tell them, you need to disobey God. They were too smart for that. That's why he was more cunning. So he came to deceive them into telling him that he was doing one thing for them when he was trying to do something else, to steal from them what God had given them. So how does he do it? He asks them a question. That's still how he works today. How do you know God means that? How do you know God says that? How do you know God's going to do that for you? Because what does a question, what part of the, we're going to learn to think in these three parts, what of these three parts does a question appeal to? Does it appeal to your body? Your body didn't care about questions. It appeals to your mind. Satan's scheme here is to get them to elevate their mind above their spirit. And here's how he does it. Verse 2. Well, okay, let's get into verse 6. Because I don't want to go through the debate. Genesis 3, 6. So he gets, he gets Eve in this debate with him. The moment she tries to answer the question, it's lost. Because she's now engaged in reasoning with the devil. Something happened yesterday with Molly. Molly's our little five-month-old poodle, uh, uh, Molly Poo. And um, I was doing something with her, and my wife said, why are you reasoning with her? 
I have no clue why I'm reasoning with her. I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain to this little five-month-old dog why she should do Just tell her what to do and train her to do it. She, oh, this, she doesn't have the capacity to reason. It's a mistake we make with our children, with small children sometimes. Parents try to reason with them. They don't need to learn how to think. They'll do that on their own. They need to learn how to obey. So that when they're older and they begin to know God and the Lord, they'll have learned how to obey Him the way they learned how to obey you. Small children. That was free. So now the woman's in her mind. The power to resist, the power to obey, was in her spirit, the part of her that was made of God's nature. But now that she's turned to her mind, her mind isn't strong enough to overcome the temptation, and neither is yours. You will either be governed by your body or you'll be governed by your spirit. Because your mind is designed to serve one or the other. And the, so when the woman, what's that word? Saw. What do you see with? Your eyes. So now she's turning to what her five senses tell her about what God said. Now we're seeing these three parts be manipulated, be tempted to get out of order, and what happens? She saw that the tree was good for food. The decision that it's good for food is an independent judgment she's making apart from what God said. God told her what was good. And now she is exercising her own independent judgment about what is good separate from what God said. This is what the world's doing today. God has set forth what He says is good and right, how a marriage is functioned, what a marriage is, who are the participants in a marriage. And once you unplug from God and you start deciding these kind of things with a human mind and understanding, Romans chapter 1 will tell you what will happen, and we're living it out today. Perversion. Things that ten years ago would never be tolerated are the law of the land now. Why? Because when man is not connected to God and tries to use his mind to discern good from evil, it is not capable of it apart from a connection to God. She saw that it was good for food. Secondly, that it was pleasant to the eyes. That the true, it was desirable, look at that, to make one wise. The tree, this natural thing, is going to make me wise instead of God's my source of wisdom. I want a source of wisdom that doesn't depend on God. I want it to depend on me. And this is what humanism is. The philosophy of our world. Can't stall there. So it's all out of balance, and everything that happened after that stems from that. And that's where you were before you came to Christ. Just exactly in the same place. Designed by God for your spirit to govern you, but since your spirit is disconnected from God, it's incapable of it. 
And so the only thing that fills in is your mind, is your soul, and it's relying on your flesh to feed your flesh, satisfy your flesh, and then build up your flesh. But Jesus came to restore what God made in the garden. Oh boy, I've got to move on. We may not get this done today. Romans chapter 8. Romans is an amazing book. The first four chapters really deal with why we need to get saved, how we get saved. And then starting in chapter 7, Paul deals with now that you're saved, the struggle that goes on. Westbury talks about starting in verse 14. The things that I know in my heart are the right things to do. Those are the things I can't do. And the things I determine I never should do again are the very things I run out of church and do right away. Oh, no, look at that. You've done it all the time. <laughs> he says, what am I going to do, Yangelo? Who's going to deliver me from this body of flesh? Who's going to deliver me from it? And his answer in chapter 8 is, thanks be to God. Is there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 is the description of what God, once Christ came, what God does to us by His Spirit, through our spirit, to do what we could not do for ourselves. It's the story of how God, through Christ, has now put things back in order. So when you come to Christ, that old man that was in rebellion against God, that man died. You were, he was crucified with Christ, and a new creature was born in you. We talked about that last week. And that new creature is born of God, out of God, with God's nature. That's how you're a child of God. You're not a child of God by your body. You're a child of God because God's seed was conceived in you as a new spirit. And just as in, you are, you are you're conceived in you, just as, as God's seed by the Holy Spirit was conceived in Mary's womb. Amen. Amen. And it makes you just as much a child of God as Jesus is. Just as much a son of God as Jesus is. Amen. And that's what God did. But the other two parts are our responsibility. That's why Romans 12 once says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And verse 2 says we are to renew our, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our soul and our body are our responsibility. But let's get down to verse 12. We're going to not finish this today. Romans 12. Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. Now he's talking about people that are born again now. You've got God's Spirit in you. You've been put back in the other order. You've now got a Spirit in you that's alive unto God. The problem is, that Spirit that's alive unto God, born of God, was put in your old body with your old soul. Your old body and your old soul are not used to being submitted to God the way that first couple was. So they're in rebellion against what your Spirit wants to do. Your Spirit wants to obey God. Your Spirit wants to do the will of God. But your spirit's starting way behind because you've lived all your life dominated, we all have, dominated by our flesh and dominated by our mind. Now that we have, God's alive in us by the Spirit, we have to work because your soul and your body are not used to being subject to God's Spirit in you. Amen. This is what Romans 6 talks about. Or Romans 7. The very things I, I know I should do are the very... Because I'm not in control yet, and yet the power to do that, the new spirit's in me. But Romans 8 tells you where the power to get it back right is. It's through the Holy Spirit at work through your spirit. Amen. 
Therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13. For if you, if, by, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit is in you to strengthen you to get control over your flesh. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the Spirit is in us to help us overcome our flesh, to infuse your spirit, man, with the boldness and the strength to take charge and say, No, my flesh is not going to rule me. I rule my flesh. I rule my mind. I tell my mind what to think. You're not your mind. That's a tool that was given to you. You need to develop the tool and train the tool to do what is there to do. And we're to be led by the Spirit, not by our circumstances, not by our flesh. Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Your spirit is what connects you to God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. He can't go in there. Verse 17. And if children were heirs, they go, okay, we've got to move on. All right. Now, what does this mean for us? I've got to quickly go through this. It means four things. Galatians 5, 16. This is where all this theory, all this theology becomes practical in our lives. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We've just been read where the Spirit's been given to us to help us to overcome and dominate our flesh and in Galatians, he tells us how. He said, then walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I used to think it mean, Ooh, ooh, oh Lord, oh, oh Lord, oops. That's just flaky. That's not real. All right? To walk in the... Now remember, remember this, is why, this is why we took the parts and we blew them up and identified what they are. To walk in the Spirit means you learn to live your life through the day, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, more conscious of the Spirit man on the inside of you than the world that's around you and your flesh. Say, so I can do that. You've got to start somewhere. That's what part of what prayer does. So a part of worship, not just here, but at home does. I woke up in the middle of the night last night, started talking to the Lord in here, not up there, in here. In the middle of the day, I'll stop. Talk to him about the situations in your life. Walking in the Spirit means you learn to live, and it's a process. It's a lifelong process where you learn to live more aware and conscious of the Spirit on the inside of you that you are and the Holy Spirit inside of you, then you are the world that's... You can get to the point where you're more aware of that than your own body. I mentioned earlier that, that in the book of Revelation starts with, it says, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? He was at a place in prayer or whatever worship where he was more conscious of the Spirit realm in him than the fact that he was on his knees I, uh, 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 on the Isle of Patmos. If you've ever been in prayer, and some of you may, may, may have never experienced this, and you suddenly realize, I have no concept of what time it is. You were in the Spirit. If you're in prayer, 
and you think it's been two hours you've been praying, and you look at your watch, and it's five minutes, and you go, you were not in the Spirit. Now, why is, this so, why is this so important? Verse 16, 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now, that's a capital S spirit, but in the Greek, which was, this, was translated out of, it was all uppercase. So the, the translators use what they think the context is to decide whether it's the Holy Spirit or your spirit. I believe that based on the context here, he's referring to your, human, your spirit, the born-again spirit. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for they're contrary to one another. Do you ever notice that? So that you do not do the things that you wish. Verse 18. For if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under a law. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Keep going. I want to get through these quickly. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, evil, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and look at those, and the like. So if you're not in there, you're maybe in the like. <laughs> Which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things, because it's their nature, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But it's not your nature. So he said, don't act like, act like your nature, not like those that are of the world. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit... This is what the Spirit in you wants to bring out in you. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Keep going. Gentleness, self-control, self-control, self-control. Against sense there's no law. There doesn't need to be. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, you've been, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God has made you alive in the Spirit. So what Paul's saying, if you've been made alive by the Spirit, if your Spirit's been made alive, now let us walk in that. But if you don't understand the difference between your spirit and your soul, that won't mean anything to you. So the first thing is, we are called to walk in the Spirit. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've got to very quickly go through this. Now, I'm not gonna, we're not going to have a chance to read this, but verses 7 through 15 tell you a little bit about what Paul went through. Well, go to verse 8. I want to show you a sample. We're hard-pressed on every side. You need to go read, I think it's in chapter 6, where Paul talks about what, he, what this hard-press was. I mean, it's not like he's having a bad day. Couldn't get his hair in the right place. It's not like he's being persecuted because the kids didn't like him this morning. I mean, at one point he was brought out of a city, stoned to death. The disciples, his disciples gathered around him. He was raised from the dead and went back into the city. But not crushed. We're perplexed. It means he didn't know what to do. But we're not in despair. Might as well keep going. Verse 9. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We'll stop there. What he's saying is, this has not been a cakewalk. Right. Just like you and me, we get 
pressure from outside by the enemy, by circumstances, what the enemy uses. And Paul says, I'm hard-pressed. Ever feel like wherever you turn, there's pressure coming in on you? He said, but I'm not in despair. I'm perplexed. I don't know what's going on here. I thought God sent me here and every, oh, hell's coming breaking loose against me. Literally. I don't know what's going on here. But I'm not giving up. We're going to go down to, um, we're going to get down to verse uh, 16. He's going to tell us how. Therefore, we do not lose heart. The thing Satan's after more than anything is to get you to lose heart, become discouraged, and want to quit. Even though the outward man is perishing, now what part of you is that? That's your body. Even though parts of your outward man are going... No, we won't go there. (laughs) The inward man, which part of you is that? Your spirit. So this is Paul's secret for overcoming... And finishing everything he went through. If you read Second Timothy, everything he went through, the, everything Satan could throw against him to kill him, destroy him, none of it worked. And he came to the end. And one of the most telling things is he says, all of Asia fell away. All the work he did in Galatia and all those places where he laid his life down, they all backslid. And you don't read a Paul at the end saying, oh, I did all this for them and look what they did. It's a, there's a tone of victory in this. I have fought a good fight. I have run my race. And there's laid up for me a course. This is how he did it. Verse 17. For this light affliction which is for a moment, Paul's comparing all the stuff his body went through to what was happening on the spirit man in the inside and the destiny he had in the spirit. He's saying it's a momentary light affliction. He's working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. So Paul is comparing when he's evaluating the struggle he's in, whether he's going to quit or whether he's going to go on. He steps back and looks at it through this prism we have of spirit, soul, and body. And he says, oh, that's just my body. That's just this material realm. That's, that's temporary. That's light. Because everything I've been doing by obeying God is earning for me an eternal weight of glory. A weight, a substance of glory and of power that's eternal compared. And the devil wants to be pressured you, get you to think, I can't do this. I can't last at this. All you've got to do is hang on and finish because there is a reward waiting for you that is eternal, that is full of glory. And the devil knows that. So he tries, he's desperate to get you to keep looking at the circumstances, keep looking at your body, keep looking at what's wrong, instead of looking at what's in your spirit and what God says. Verse 18, and here's the key. While we look not at the things that are seen, that's easy to do, you just close your eyes. I'm looking not at a bunch of people that can be seen. Better not drive home this way. But look at the rest of the thing. But look at the things that are not seen. How do we do that? 
Well, here's how. For the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. What Paul's saying here is, I learned to live my life. And looking at doesn't just mean your eyes. It means your focus. It means how you talk. It means how you think. It means walking in the Spirit. More conscious, more aware of the Spirit that lives inside of you of God than you are of the body and the circumstances around you. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are seen are not temporary. I don't have time to go into this in detail. I've told the story here before, but there are a number of times when I was practicing law, I would be in the middle of a trial, and I had one where it just fell apart. The judge completely reversed the decision he made, and essentially I had no case. And I had no idea what to do. There were people's jobs at stake. And I walked out, he asked for George for a continuance for a day. He said, I'll give you ten minutes. Merciful. He's made up his mind. And I walked out of that, my mind's buzzing around. And I was a lawyer. I'm trained to, to analyze. I'm trained to come up with answers. And there's just no answer. I don't know what to do. I'm, there's a panic trying to see in on me. And I've got people around me trying to give me advice. And I said, I can't. I thank you. And I went down to the end. I can still see it. It was an old wooden bench. I pulled out a yellow pad. And I said, God, you put this case in my lap. I don't know what to do. And I listened in here. Not here, in here. And it's as if a question just bubbled up, that's the only way to describe it, bubbled up inside of me. And I knew who to ask it for. I went back into court, I called that man up, and I asked this question. And five lawyers from the big firm in New York jumped up and screamed and yelled and objected. And I knew we'd hit a nerve. The judge woke up, because he'd been kind of sleeping through this. And he said, no, I want to hear the answer to that question. And the judge took over questioning the witness. It completely turned a case around because it uncovered something that was going on that I didn't know about. But the spirit inside of me did. And if I had been governed by my mind and my senses and tried to figure out the answer, I never would have heard that and there would have been a completely different result of that case. But you won't know how to do that if you don't know the difference between your spirit, your soul, and your body. I'll end with these two statements. Why is it important for us to see this now? Because where God is calling us to go, personally and as a church, where God is calling us to go is a a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. He's not calling us to move to some other location, but He's calling us to move in the spirit. John, oh my, you know. Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for a change when he was leaving them in John 14. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. We sang a little bit about that this morning. And you know the way. And Philip says, Lord, 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 how can we know the way when we don't even know the destination? How can we know the destination when we don't even know the way? Philip's thinking of a physical place and a physical way to get there. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I am the way. I am the truth. It's in me. And lastly, what he's calling us to do can only be done through the Spirit. So we have to become much more conscious of our Spirit and of His Spirit in us in order to follow Him.
Let's pray. Father, help us as we move into this, into this time we're in, both in our lives personally, because there's just a lot of change going on in people's lives. We're in a season of change, and change can be unsettling. And because we get unsettled, because we look at the natural circumstances, we listen to our soul and wondering how you're going to have this and what are you going to do about this, help us to learn to listen to our spirit and to your spirit in us. And help us to be prepared for where you're calling us to go and what you're forming us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end the